Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, what they don't teach you in residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one in our series discussing diversity, equity, and inclusion. As many of you are aware, Juneteenth is a national holiday, and yet its origin and importance are poorly understood by most. Juneteenth is also known as Freedom Day and Emancipation Day, and is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the U.S. It's even been called America's Second Independence Day. Why June 19, 1865, more than two years after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation? Why do we know so little about it? To answer those and other questions today, we are fortunate to have Brian Brown as our guest host. Brian is a senior clinical practice manager and frequently contributes thoughtful, inspirational information on healthcare diversity topics. Just a few weeks ago, he was awarded Team Health's inaugural national DEI award. Brian will introduce the guest expert, Rex Everett. Thank you, Brian. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Strauss. Uh, once again, it's a pleasure to be guest hosting Beyond Clinical Medicine. Today, I have a really, really, really good and somewhat moving and personal topic that, that I would like to engage uh, colleagues and in, in other employees with, and, and that's on the subject of Juneteenth. Um, my guest today is Rex Everett, who's the Vice President of Business Development for Team Health. And two years ago, Rex had wrote a very personal and moving blog in with regards to what Juneteenth means to me. And suffice to say, as me being an individual of color that's a descendant from a former slave family, at the time he wrote this article, I had no clue what Juneteenth was. And as time has progressed over the last two years, I found that there are many individuals of color that also find themselves in the same situation as to not understanding or knowing what Juneteenth was. And, and specifically two years ago, I know that Juneteenth uh, became a national holiday um, through the current uh, uh, presidential administration. And so what I'd like to do is kind of peel the onion back a little bit and kind of start at ground zero and, and have a conversation with, with Rex about the article he wrote, What Juneteenth Means to Me. So Rex, thank you so much, first and foremost, for carving out your time and sharing on a very, very personal subject. So if I can, can I ask you, just for those that aren't familiar with the article that you wrote, can you give us kind of a brief synopsis as to what what Juneteenth is and, and why you wrote that article? Yes, thanks, Brian. And, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity uh, two of us to have a discussion around around Juneteenth uh, and some other historical facts as as, as well. And I, I wrote the I wrote the article because I wanted to share my experience around Juneteenth uh, for the first time. I grew up in North Carolina in the South in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and I had never heard of Juneteenth. And I was in my first year in management, and I was actually in a management training program, and I just started, uh, and they had relocated me to Texas, to Houston, in 1980, 
1980 was my very first experience with Juneteenth. And, and it's kind of interesting how I found out about it. Uh, was around, you know, the director of the department. I was a housekeeping supervisor and the director indicated that, okay, on Juneteenth, which was a couple of days away, you're going to have a lot of call outs. You know, a lot of the employees will call out and you need to make sure that you can reduce that, the number of call outs, right? So I took it on I'm, I'm early in my career and I'm 22 years old and wanting to make an impact uh, with the organization and, and start my trek up the leadership chain, if you will. And uh, I decided that I said, well, I'll come in that morning and I'll take all the calls. So they'd have to talk to me personally. And the next day, uh, the following day after Juneteenth, I was you know, recognized by my director and other members of the management team that I had no call outs and everybody came in that day and I was patting myself on the back, you know, job well done. You know, you, you put your, you're now putting your stake in the ground around, okay, I'm moving up in management and that sort of thing. But then some of the employees, several of whom were black employees, several of whom were old enough to be my parents and grandparents pulled me aside and schooled me around what Juneteenth meant and what it meant to them. And I had never heard it. I was just surprised. I, I, I never heard it. And I went to the library, which was you know Google back in the day, to do some of my own research. And I discovered that, so it was like two and a half years you know, after Lincoln, we had the Emancipation Proclamation. It was two and a half years and two and a half months you know, after the end of the Civil War before word got to Texas around now, you know, the slaves were theoretically free. Uh, and that bothered me, uh, number one, how long it took, but number two, why I wasn't taught that. But that was my introduction to, to Juneteenth. And although we couldn't celebrate relative to giving them a day off, I will say what we did do was we would have, you know, lunch that day where people would bring pot lunch in and we celebrated it at work, you know, at the hospital. So that was my introduction uh, to Juneteenth. So, Rex, thanks for that. Several things that you shared with me that I would like to unpack during the course of our conversation. So, first and foremost, is Juneteenth, was it unique to just Texas? Because that's kind of the discussion around the Union troops coming to Galveston and giving the news, which, you know, modes of communication were much different back in the late 1800s. But two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, would you say that that's kind of where the, the disconnect was from where you being like in the heart of what would be considered where a lot of the slave states were versus Texas, where this actually this activity of communicating the news that slaves that were still in bondage were freed and were allowed to be treated as freedmen at that time? Would you say that that's somewhat accurate? Yeah, I'd say I'd say that was accurate. Right. Uh, because it was Galveston. And, uh, and actually, Texas and Galveston, Houston had an early celebration right after that. Uh, and we have Emancipation Park, which is in downtown Houston, that was developed and still stands to this day after that. So it was, it was unique to Texas, I think, relative to those individuals that would know. But I struggled with why that still wasn't a part of you know, history relative to U.S. history and relative to that time of events you know, around the end of the war and the things that transpired right after that. 
Well, in, in, in your journey, you're going, you're there in Texas at 1980. And fast forward to 2021, where Juneteenth has actually become a national holiday. Why don't we know about this? Why have we not heard about this? And, you know, from from your experience, can you kind of share with us, you know, why this is somewhat of a challenge and, you know, why individuals like myself and many others are just coming to know about Juneteenth, even though it's been celebrated well over, you know, 45 plus years? Well, I think that's in part of what we've been taught, right? One of the things I share in, in the blog uh, two years ago was uh, was around you know I knew my history my you know my father uh, was sort of a, not just a family historian but he knew the history that dated back and so when we look at our personal history within my family on my on my dad's side uh, of the family my great grandfather John Everett and his three brothers uh, Nathaniel Aaron and Daniel escaped the Everett plantation and then swam to a boat off the Wilmington shore that took them to a union ship uh, where they enlisted on, on the Arleta into the Union Army, I mean, the Union Navy during the Civil War. And on, on, my, on my dad's matriarchal side, my great-grandfather, uh, Lincoln Hawkins, who also served in the, uh, in the infantry with the Union. He was a slave and, and served in the infantry. So my, my father was real keen around us knowing that part of our history, even though some of those things just were not taught to us. And I think that's part true today. As you look at what's being taught on, you know, a high school level and even on a collegiate level, it's really written with with a degree of intentionality around what we want you to know and what we just don't want you to know. And I think that's part of, you know, of why so many people were not aware, including myself, you know, of Juneteenth uh, and the facts around it and why it was so important, you know, to the folks here in Texas. So, for example, as we were taught in school, the books that we were taught from uh, were the books that were written by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And, and why was that important? And not only why it's not important then, but I think it's why it's important today. If you want to you get a sense of, of the pushback that we have today and what we're teaching our kids in school. And so Rutherford, uh, Mildred Lewis Rutherford, in 1919, with her committee, published a 23-page pamphlet. It's called A Measuring Rod Textbooks. So it's the test, T-E-S, textbooks and reference books in schools and colleges. And it was around how the lost cause mythology was being taught. And they wanted to distill it into accessible bullet points and blurbs and, and backed by cherry-picked quotes from professors, politicians, uh, newspapers, in the period speeches at the time, right? And they wanted to embrace it and use it as a measuring tool. They when called it a measuring tool. What what do you believe is being measured at the time? Well, they they called it the measuring rod, right? That was at the state division. So now they had a simple set of rules for textbooks, but also a distillation of lost cause ideology in a format easy for the general public to digest, right? And so here's what they did with it. 1920, uh, they followed the measure, the measuring rod with a 114-page book titled Truths of History. And in the truth of history, it was 
as she explained the content, the measuring rod by adding more perceived wrongs levied upon the South by the North. This time, she specifically called out textbooks that offended the United Daughters of the Confederacy by name. Those textbooks were then blacklisted and had an immediate effect as a state launched a campaign to ban books, right? So how does that sound today? We now have a campaign to ban books that teach a truth about our history, right? Uh, and now those books are being banned, states like Florida, states like my state in Texas, and several other states. And it fits the scenario of if you don't know your history, you don't know we're repeating it, right? We can re we, as we make progress, there are still those forces that push back, right, to take that progress backwards. So you look at the ban, the book ban in 1920 for schools in the South, and now I'm being taught the narrative around the Confederacy being honored, uh, and there was Northern aggression, not necessarily Southern rebellion that created the succession from the Union. So there have been a lot of discussions that you and I have had relative to the eco-political environment during that time. I think my phrase that I used when we were talking is the Emancipation Proclamation could be like an unfunded mandate that would allow policy to be created with no way to fund it. Let's talk a little bit more about the time of when slaves were freed and what transpired relative to what you just said or, or shared with us about not really knowing your truth, but what a predominantly accepted narrative of history was at that time, if you will. You know, sure, sure, Brian. That when we look at that point in history, right, you had the Emancipation Proclamation that that Lincoln passed, if you will, which really freed slaves that now they could actually fight in the war, in the Union War, right? It didn't give them rights. And, and what's what's missing from that, and I'm, and I'm I'll go back to why that's missing, is that you know there were some, oh, I don't know, almost two hundred thousand black men most of whom were former slaves or escaped slaves who served in either the Union Army or the Union Navy. And immediately after the war, you know, now we had, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, right? You know, the you know, 13th Amendment, you know, which, which abolished involuntary solitude. You know, the 14th Amendment, you know, that gave citizenship. 15th Amendment gave Black men the right to vote. And during that time, we had some, in the first election, after they were given the right to vote, you had some 1,500 Black men who served in political office, in Congress on a national level, state level, as well as local, local level. And you had this period of time that was called Reconstruction, right? And Reconstruction was from like 1865 uh, to 1877. There were thousands of schools built in the South, because you had to have a place for now these freed slaves. Well, they had to be taught. Uh, you had to have a place for that. And so now you had the government providing that, right? And as they progressed, held office and progressed, and you had the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment during this, during this time, that period of time was, I call, the best time in our history, 
although be it short-lived. And it was short-lived because in 1877, you had the 18, Compromise of 1877, right, which was a disputed election uh, between Republican and Democrat. And of course, the dispute was related to electoral votes, uh, guess what, where? In Florida, right? And so Congress had to decide on, well, who's going to be president? And they put a commission together to do that. The results of that was the Republican candidate was one in the Republican Party, if you remember then, was the Liberal Party, the Progressive Party uh, at the time. But one of the concessions that they gave up was they remove all the Federalists. So all the Federalists with the army that supported and protected these now freed slaves during Reconstruction pull them out of the South. And when they pulled them out of the South, they gave control back to literally the former Confederate politicians, leaders at the time who immediately began the reversal of intimidation, all kinds of things. Well, it was the, the revitalization of the Ku Klux Klan at the time, right? And through intimidation, through not just intimidation, through murders and killings of Republicans, both black and white, you had 1,500 plus black men in office at that time. And by 1901, there was one left uh, from North Carolina when he left office. How that history was taught where I grew up was Reconstruction was a failure. It was a disaster. And it's interesting because in, during, in school, uh, particularly in high school, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest of four, four kids in our family, and, and, and there's five years between me and my older sister. We would bring home homework from school, right? We, we're part of that group that were put, forced into school integration, as we called it, uh, in the 60s. When we were taught history, the version we were taught is, you know, Reconstruction was a disaster. Uh, it, it was a failure. You had the birth of a nation in 1915, that depicted, you know, black men in Congress. They were, you had caricatures of them drinking and being drunk and fighting and, and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and that was the marketing tool, marketing tool that was used. But I remember my father telling us as we had to, you know, do the homework and pass the test, he would tell us, okay, that's not the truth. That's not accurate, but you have to pass the test. So give them the answer that's in the book even though the book is wrong. How did that make you feel? Well, I mean, it, it, it put you in a position, even as a child, okay, I know my history and I know what I'm being taught is wrong, but I'm being forced to accept it. And, and you're sort of helpless at that point around, maybe that's the truth, right? You know, I think you and I were talking a little bit yesterday and, and I talked about, so there, you know, there, there's sort of three truths, your personal truth, the scientific truth, right? Facts. You know, and then and there are no political truths, uh, you know, designed to reflect whatever ideology that you have. But it was it was frustrating, you know, go, going through that. But as a child, you sort of brush it off because I got to pass the test. Right. And I have to please my teacher. But it was it was troubling. I, I can tell you it was pretty troubling. I can see that one scenario being very problematic with having to deny yourself the ability to have that truth for yourself. But it's not just that one event. It's those little micro events that occur every day as we're developing 
that seemed to tell us. And, you know, I, I think the analogy was that we were talking, the glass that's white in front of us is not really white. It's a black glass, even though all signs show it's a white glass. Over time, do you feel that as we are having to conform to a narrative that not necessarily is the narrative of our history? Do you feel that's done that to, and when you say our, we're talking collectively of black people, specifically relative to Juneteenth and history, we've been denied our history and had to adapt to what the colloquial narrative is for that time around race? Well, it's interesting you you say that. And when I look at sort of where we are today, and where we are today is no different than where we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And I think what's troublesome about today is by not knowing and understanding our history. And, and when I say our history, it's American history. And when you don't, through history, understand the facts around how do you take a people, you bring them to a country uh, they know not anything of, right? And we won't talk about how they got here. There's to travel to get here. But you have to do some things to justify why you have to have that labor force here is what I'm going to call it for right now. And, and then to do that, you strip them of language, you strip them of culture, you strip them of religion, you strip them of family, you strip them of all those things, right? And then as a God-fearing society, you have to convince the mainstream uh, that all this is okay, right? And the way you do that, you have to dehumanize them, right? So you have to go through that process. And to go through that process, what was used, right? You use science to talk about it. You use religion to show that, you know, God ordained it, right? And then you extract one of the best marketing tools ever in the history of the country to sell it, right? You expose your propaganda over and over and over again. How else can you explain how mainstream could be mainstream, I quote, mainstream America, were okay with what was going on with slavery in the South? Because you had, these were, these were good people, right? These were good God-fearing people. And if you look at today, some of those tools are sort of still in place. And again, it's around the propaganda around it. And it's a misunderstanding, I won't say a misunderstanding, it's the lack and willingness of being taught how we got here. If you educate folks how we got here, then we can do, actually find avenues and some common ground of how we can move forward. But outside of that, you continue into this cycle, right? Where you have a fashion of the country that's still reaching for sort of the good old days. I appreciate the sentiment that you shared that if we don't engage and talk about it, we'll never be able to proceed forward. You and I have talked about that in several different forms and fashions, but unique to the conversation we're having now and the purpose of what we're trying to accomplish is just that, is we want people to become aware. We want people to be able to engage in these discussions and understand what really was, the, what is or was the truth so that we can move forward in situations like this. Relative to why should we continue, you know, as free people to celebrate Juneteenth or even celebrate it and, and discuss it in an environment within a corporate infrastructure, why do you feel that's important? 
Well, I, I think it's I think it's very important, and I think today it has become even more important. And the reason I say that is in the social political arena today, there is such a force pushing back uh, relative to teaching our history, teaching Black history and the history of the of the United States, and it's wrapped itself in a form of you know we don't want our children to feel bad about themselves. Right. And I struggle with that mightily. Uh, I, I struggle with that. And, and I'll go back to you know the question you asked me, how did it make me feel when I was taught from the books that the daughters of the Confederacy wrote, right? You know, to glorify the Confederacy during the Civil War. You know, no, no one really considered how how did that make me feel? So I struggled with that around how does that make my grandchildren, you know, nieces and nephews black? How does that make them feel to be deprived of that knowledge, right? And what's happening in, in, in corporate America, and I'll bring it around the DEI uh, space and, and the work that's being done around that, you know, outside of the, the, the political push to push back on it, right? So you have a political push strongly pushing back on it, but then you have, you know, of, of all places, corporate America, you know, who's pushing forward. So in that context, I think is important in, in, uh, in within the corporate environment, you know, that we celebrate, uh, we talk about the history uh, and I'll bring it and I'll, I'll bring it to team to team health, uh, particularly you know, around around awareness and the work we've done here over the last just three or four years. I've been with team health 17 years and it's a great, great organization. Uh, I remember sharing with folks, some colleagues, I've been with Team about five years or so. And I get questions, what's it like working at Team Health? I said, it's great. You know, the, the expectation has been from day one, had the opportunity to, to, to interview with Dr. Massengill, you know, our found, one of our founding fathers, partners of, of organization when I came to Team. And it's really, we expect you to do your job, you know, and, and that's what it's about. But this notion around uh, awareness, Brian, is it, it's within uh, our, our work around DNI, right? And I got to serve on our, our, our committee, uh, DENI committee, uh, on the inaugural committee, and I uh, co chair a uh, Black Culture Resource Group with, with Dr. Khadija Hay. And early, one of the first or second meetings uh, with our DENI committee, uh, we were talking about awareness. And I had a different perspective of awareness. I just couldn't get my hands around how could someone say they're not aware of these social injustices when they see them, right? I see them and I'm seeing them through my lens. And I just, this notion, I just wasn't, I wasn't buying it. Uh, For decades, I just did not buy it. That you, there's no way you just cannot be aware. But again, we see things through our lens and our own experiences. And that's how I viewed awareness. And on one of our early meetings, one of our early meetings, Dr. Strauss, and God bless him, he, he just put himself out there. And, and we were talking about in some of our training and some of the slides in the training, for example, you would see a male and a female in a lab coat, a stethoscope, Right. Uh, the female was automatically assumed to be or be depicted as a nurse, not a physician, although the female was a physician. In some of the slides, there there was show show no cultural diversity within organization, right? Uh, people from other cultures, and 
he took that as an awareness tool. Our next meeting, he came back to the next meeting. He reviewed every piece of his training material. And he saw it. He said, I saw it for the first time. And he changed it. He immediately changed it. And I was taken back by it. I said, wow. I said, uh, I, I think we have an opportunity here. You know, uh, I think this is not, you know, it's not the, uh, it was the thing of the day, the thing of the week or the thing of the year relative to our DE&I strategy. It was that moment. I had that aha moment that, you know, we're listening to each other uh, and not only listening to each other, uh, once we are aware, it's one thing to be made aware, but once we are aware, we're actually taking action to change, right? And, and, and that's happening within the corporate construct. And that becomes part of our culture. And I believe it is our culture. And it's driven from the top down. You know, you have, you have all these gurus and books. I believe I read there was like 40,000 new books on leadership and development, you know, out every year or every month. You know, it's always the book of the day. But I, you know, I, I sincerely believe, and I'm convinced, you know, culture is driven from top down within an organization. And Leif Murphy, our, our CEO, has taken that mantra. He's our sponsor around our DNI work, but he's not just a sponsor, he's involved in it. And, and it's being infused as a corporate culture, but a culture, a culture of the organization. And I think that's where some of the biggest changes will take place. Uh, relative to our DEI work. Thanks for sharing that. I'd have to agree that being allowed to to share and talk about Juneteenth is very important for for our DEI initiatives, and it's not just important for Black people, but it's important for all individuals. It's important for our gender companions. It's important for our Asian and Latin companions. Um, it's important for our veterans as well, too. It, this is what makes us a diverse workforce, and it brings all of our strengths forward. And even more so, you know, I would have to echo your sentiments. And, you know, Rex, you know how much I, I respect and, and love you personally um, as someone that's been clearing the runway for younger individuals like me. But when you have leadership, like Leif Murphy and Mike Weaker, Dr. Crane, Eric Norman, and, and Dr. Strauss, just to name a few, that are welcoming us doing this work. It allows us now from where you were gave the example where you couldn't put the correct answer on the test for fear of how you're being evaluated. This senior leadership team is now giving that back to us to allow us to live in our truth. And they're wanting us to live in our truth no matter what subgroup we come from. And I think that is a very galvanizing uh, initiative from leadership that I think can't go without words and thanks as well too. So so once again, thank you very much, Rex. Thank you, thank you so much for giving up your time, sharing us with us some of your wisdom in your personal story with Juneteenth. And hopefully this will touch and resonate some of the individuals that will um, be out there that can start feeling more comfortable in understanding all of this around their own journey. And certainly we want to thank Dr. Strauss for allowing us to use this time to be able to have this discussion. So thank you, Rex, once again. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. And then thank you, Dr. Strauss. And I'll give the program back to you, sir. Wow, that was fabulous. I learned a lot and loved the discussion. 
Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Rex. And thanks to you, our listeners. I hope you've learned from this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact me, Rob Strauss, at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you. Thank you.